in this room to give you what you deserve. Father, I pray, Lord, that as I've already been praying this morning, Father, that you would truly just, Lord, open our hearts to you. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes this morning to see more of who you are. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts this morning to be able to take in and, and grasp and feel the weight of what you have done for us and what you continue to do for us through your Son. Father, I pray right now that as we get into your Word that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would take this Word and, Father, that He would use it as His sword. Father, I pray that it would cut to the deepest parts of of our cancerous sin in our lives this morning, Lord, and I pray that you would use it to to lead us back to You. Father, I pray this morning that You would accomplish Your purpose. And Lord, I know that in Your Word You said that it will not return back to You void. You will cause it to accomplish the purpose for which You sent it out to accomplish. And Father, we trust Your Word that it will do just that this morning. Father, we love You. Forgive us where we fail You, but thank You again for Your mercy and Your great grace. And Father, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you from the subject of godly sorrow producing repentance in our lives that leads to true salvation from the sin that is in our life. In the Gospels, or not the Gospels, but the letters that Paul wrote many times, especially the ones that he wrote to Timothy, he would say things like, the things that we have in the Old Testament were written for our example, or they were written for our instruction. In other words, the reason why God inspired men to write these stories down is because you and I needed instruction in our following God on our journey into His promised land. He also goes on to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he tells him that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture. Now at this time, Timothy wasn't talking about the New Testament because the New Testament wasn't written. So when he said all Scripture is God-breathed, he was talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says here that the Scriptures are all God-breathed. And he said that they are profitable for teaching, that they are profitable for reproof, that they are profitable for correction, that they are profitable for training in righteousness. And so ultimately, when we go back and we study these Old Testament stories, I want you to understand that just because you see something that takes place in these stories does not necessarily mean that it was the right way to approach a problem, okay? We look back at it and we get instruction. We get correction. We get reproof. We get... Because what I want you to understand is when we read this story of Ezra here and the way he addresses this problem, Ezra is talking and, and relating to God in very similar ways that you and I are today. You know, the Bible tells us that Moses, that God spoke to Moses unlike any other prophet that he spoke to. He he told Miriam and Aaron that when I speak to Moses, I speak to him mouth to mouth. 
In other words, I really believe that Moses literally heard the audible voice of God. Can I tell you today that I'm not saying that God don't do it, and I'm not saying that He hasn't done it for some of you, but not very likely and not very many have I ever heard that actually know that God audibly spoke to them. Now again, I'm not saying God don't do it. God's God. God do whatever He wants to do. <laughs> he ain't got to ask my permission. But still, the fact of the matter is, when He described the way that He dealt with Moses, it was different than any other person. And so by the time we get to prophets like Ezra, Ezra is trying his best to figure out how to follow the Lord, how to um, obey the law of God, how to walk in the Scriptures the way that God has given us. And he's ultimately just he's, he's crying out to God in prayer and he's being led by God. But at the same time, can I tell you that even Moses, as much of a relationship as Moses had with God, this is what Jesus said about, about Moses. Now think about this for just a second. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked Him a question. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus comes back and He says, basically, no. It's not lawful to divorce for just any reason. But then the Pharisees came back and said, well then why did... Moses say that you should just give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted it. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now here's the point that I'm trying to make. If a man like Moses that spoke to God mouth to mouth Word to word, they spoke to one another that way. If a man like Moses can give the people a, a wrong way to address a problem, don't you think that it's very possible for a man like Ezra or a man like me or anybody else that doesn't speak to God mouth to mouth to sometimes not give the best advice in a situation? And so as we're studying this this morning, I want you to understand that what we're dealing with is a problem that continuously led the people of God into sin. God had warned His people over and over again through Moses that when you go into this land, if you yoke up in marriages with the people that serve the other gods of this land, it is going to turn you away from following me. And ultimately, that's exactly what happened. Now we get brought back out of the bondage that God sent them into for this very reason, because they yoked up with the people of the land, then they started sinning by serving their gods and worshiping their gods and just following the flow of the world, honestly, which is the same thing you and I are susceptible to if we don't come out from among the world and be separate, right? And so ultimately... Ezra is dealing with a group of people that they have come back to the promised land and they are falling into the very sin that, know, that God knows and Ezra knows is going to start turning them away from following the Lord their God again. And Ezra don't know how to deal with this. As a matter of fact, as we read through this, you're going to see that Ezra actually begins to feel completely hopeless in the situation. 
As far as Ezra is concerned, he's just going to sit down and cry and wait on God to come and just completely destroy them. And you're going to see that here in a minute because the people have to actually beg and plead with Ezra. They say, Ezra, please, get up. Here's what we can do. Here's what, how we can solve this problem. And Ezra, again, he don't really know exactly how to go about this. He don't know what to do about this. But he listens to the people, he agrees with the people, and ultimately they all make a decision together, right or wrong. At the end of the day, they make a decision together that they believe is best to repent from this sin. And you're going to see in this story that what happens is that godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow is when you get caught, right? Who's going to find out about this? Am I going to lose my job? So on and so on and so on. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a is a regret, a grief within you because you know what you have done and how God sees it and how God feels about it in your relationship with Him. And when your heart breaks with godly sorrow, it produces a repentance that leads unto salvation. And you're going to see that here in a minute. So again, I'm trying to preface this sermon by helping you understand. The things we're going to be talking about and the way he addresses it, I'm not telling you that this is the right way and that Ezra did right. Because if Moses can do wrong in addressing the people, do you not think Ezra can? And so when we read the scriptures of the old, I don't want you to read this and develop a doctrine and say, well, since they did this, then that must mean that it was okay. No, Moses actually allowed the people to do things lawfully that was never what God intended to do. Amen? And so in the same manner, when we're looking at Ezra, you're going to see the same thing. So I want, you to, I want you to understand that as we go through it. One of the things that we're seeing in this is that Ezra recognizes that it's been some 70, 80 years since they have been brought back from the slavery of, of Babylon and they are building the temple back. It's built back. They're worshiping. The people are serving God. But the problem is this. They're just going through the motions. Anybody ever been there? They're just going through the motions of worship. There's no real sincerity to following God, to loving the Lord. There's no, you know, the, I saw a, a meme one time that said um, something to the effect of there used to be a time when people came to church, heard the truth, and wept for their sins. Now people want to come to church, hear a motivational message, and leave out laughing and rejoicing. And we need to get back to that place where we understand that you and I are sinners. We really are. Our ways are not God's ways. And I'm not saying that we should walk out of here depressed with our head held down, but I am saying that we ought to come and hear the Word of God and there ought to be something in us that says, Man, I, do I fall way short. Wow, I have missed the mark here and here and here. And so... It's important to me that when we go back and study of the Scriptures that we're able to do that as well. And this is what's happening here. Ezra is realizing that in all this time that they should already be back to a place of following God. Instead of getting closer to God, the sin is heaping up. 
It is piling up. And you're going to see that in his prayer as we read it here in just a minute. But whenever he, he recognizes this, his heart is just absolutely broken. Why? Because God had warned them over and over again that if you do this, if you don't come out from among people that are serving other gods other than the one true God, they are going to turn you away from following God. That's just the truth of it. And so he says here that our sin just keeps getting worse and worse. It started because of the fact that we didn't come out from among the people that are serving other gods. And now we've started walking the way they walk. We've started talking the way they talk. That is the problem with the church today. I'm not saying we're exempt. But the problem with the church today is we want the church to be so attractive to the world that we want the world to fall in love with what we do here in this church. And so we got to have the smoke and we got to have the lights and we got to have, we got to make it so much like the world so that when people outside come in, they look at it and they say, man, that's what I want. And the problem is, that's completely backwards. The church ought to look so much different from the world that when sinners come in, they see truth, they hear truth, they recognize that this is nothing like what I'm used to. And so this is what we're trying to be able to get back to. And again, our Western culture, we're so far away from it. We are. I'm not even saying we've got it right here because we don't have it all together. But we're still trying. We're still learning from the truth of God's Word and we're still trying to work these things back so that we are moving in a direction toward ways that are more like Him and more pleasing to Him. Here's what I'm trying to get to this morning. God always warned them, if you don't come out from among the world and quit being like the world, ultimately you are going to be destroyed along with the world. And his own people continued to become so much like the world that he finally came in and he wiped 90% of them out so that only a remnant was left. Just a remnant. And God had actually been so gracious because ultimately he had told them, when you do this, I am going to destroy you. And let me tell you, God is still going to keep that word. He didn't lie. The only thing God has done is He's demonstrating that He is patient, that He is long-suffering, that He is rich in mercy, that He is rich in grace. And the Bible says, don't count the patience of God as Him not keeping His promise. No, God is long-suffering in that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so at the end of the day, what we're looking at right here is that God's warning still stands, just like He told them in the Old Testament. If you continue to be like the world, I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to destroy you. But what God wants is not people to come to church. God don't want people to come and just raise their hands and worship. God don't want people to just bow their knees at an altar. God don't care anything about the motions. What God cares about is the heart and where it stands with Him. Let me show you some examples of that. Look with me, if you would, at Joel chapter 2, verse 12, and then we'll go to verse 13 next. 
Yet even now, and again, he's talking to his people that their sin is just heaping up, piling up. They are literally serving other gods at this point. And here he says to them, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with what? With all your heart. And how do we see that? What is the evidence of that? We come back with a godly sorrow in us. We come back with fasting because fasting is an outward expression of an inward mourning. And so here we have these people that God says, come back to me with the, with the heart that expresses that it is mourning over the sin in your life. Come back to me with weeping. Come back to me with mourning. This is what God wants. And ultimately, I want you to rent your hearts. I want your hearts to break to, for where you are in your sin. I want you to recognize how great I am. I want you to recognize how great I have been towards you, what I have blessed you with, what I have done for you, and I want your hearts to be broken when you see how you have responded to my grace. And he says, I want your hearts to be rent, and I don't care that you rip your garments, because in this day and time, again, the outward expression was they went through the motions. They came to church, and they ripped their garments, and they plucked their beard, and they they wept, but the heart was not rent for the sin in their life. And God said, unless this happens, I am not going to be this towards you. Return to the Lord your God, for He is what? He's gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. Ain't somebody, somebody say, God, thank you that, you that you're slow to anger. Because I'm telling you, there have been so many days God should have just struck me where I stood. I'll be honest with you. Some storms here lately, I'll be walking outside looking up going, God right now is as good a time as any if you're ready to get me. And then I'll think to myself, well maybe I need to go in. And then I'll think, you know what, He can get me in there too, so it don't really matter. But He is gracious, He is merciful, He is slow to anger, He is abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. He has no desire to destroy anyone. Not a single person. He relents over disaster. And so He gives this time, but He, he, he wants a heart that is rent, that turns back toward Him. Notice what God told Him through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 through 4. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne. Now remember, He's talking to a group that they're coming back and they're building a temple for Him. And they're fixing to go through the motions. They're going to build this temple. This is where we're at in Ezra, right? They built the temple, and then they're going to establish the worship back. They're going to establish the sacrifices back. And God says to them through Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. So what is the house that you would build for me? In other words, do you really think God cares about this building? Do you really think God has even an inkling of love for this wood and sticks and plastic and everything else around here? None whatsoever. Do you really think God cares about people that just come and fill these pews? No. What does God care about? God cares about a heart that loves Him. 
that sees Him for who He is, that wants to be right with Him, and that is broken over the fact that my ways are not your ways, God. My sin breaks me. My sin hurts me. My sin rips my heart in half. And He says here, what is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest, if you will? Because that's what they called it. Now go to verse 2. All these things my hand has made. You think you built this building? You think you have the strength to get up and go to work every morning and you give money? Every bit of it came from where? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. In other words, I'm not looking to people that come to church. I'm not looking to people that sit in the pews and raise their hands and sing a song to me. I'm looking to people that is this right here. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and he who is contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He says, I'm looking to people that they recognize where their ways fall so short of my ways and how far apart we are, but yet their heart is humbled by it. And yet their heart is contrite. That word contrite means expressing remorse. It means that I am literally expressing the brokenness of my heart over the sin in my life, over the place where I am and where God is and how far the separation is between. God never desired the slaughter of animals. He never said, well, here's how... Here's how I'm going to make sure that we get ourselves right back together again. I'm just going to start killing animals. Billions upon billions, probably trillions since the world began. I'm just going to slaughter animals. God never said, this is the way I'm going to be pleased with you. It was never through motions. It was never through buildings. It was never through singing songs. It was never through just listening to His Word. It was through trembling. At His Word. It was when I hear His Word and I see that I fall so far short, it made me tremble at what I know He does to people that fall short of His glory. He never wanted those things. What He wanted was a people that have steadfast love for Him. A people that seek His knowledge for what pleases Him and desire to follow it. Look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 1-7. through He says, come, let us return. Now this is what Israel is saying, okay? And all these prophets were prophesying during this time. So it all is in context here, All right, But this is what Israel is saying. They're saying, come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us. How? He sent them off into Babylon, right? He destroyed 90% of them and only saved a remnant, just a few. He has torn us that... He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. Now is there some truth in that? There is some truth in it. And after two days He will revive us and on the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press... Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is what the people are saying. And now this is God's response to them. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? 
Now you remember, Ephraim was the northern kingdom of Israel, right? They were split into two kingdoms, northern and southern. Ephraim was the largest tribe of the northern kingdom. As a result of that, in order to make sure he included all Israel, he wanted to make sure that he called them by name. Northern kingdom, what am I going to do with you? What shall I do with you, O Judah, the largest kingdom of the southern, uh, the largest tribe of the southern kingdom? And so here he encompasses all of them and he says, what am I going to do with you? Why? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Now think about the picture that he's painting here. That's the way your love is toward me. You say, you say, come, let us come back to the Lord. You, you have this heart for a moment that says, Lord, I want to be right with you. And then after a few hours pass, where are you? So he says, therefore, I have hewn them. Because Israel is this way, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. I have told them where their sin is. I have told them that my judgment is going forth as a light. And then finally go to verse 6. For I desire... Here's what God's saying. I don't care about you saying you're going to return. I don't care about the love that is here for a moment and then tomorrow it's gone. I will not respond to that kind of heart. I don't care how much you come to church. I don't care how much you sing. I don't care how many prayers you pray. I will not respond to that kind of heart. For I desire what? Steadfast love. I desire a heart that sees me for who I am. A heart that seeks me out every day and hates the sin that is in their life. I don't want sacrifice. I don't care about the animals that you shed and the motions that you go through. I want steadfast love from you. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God. In other words, I want people that want to know, God, what do you want from me? God, how would you have me to follow you? God, what can I do in my life that will be pleasing to you? God, how can I become more like you? And can I tell you this morning with as much love in my heart as I know how to tell you? that until you get a heart like that, you ain't been born again. I'm just telling you. Until you get a heart like that, you have not been born again and you ought to be on your knees crying out to God, God, give me a new heart. God, God, give me new desires. Give me a new mind. Make me more like you. Lead me in your ways. God, draw me to you. He says, I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But, here's the problem. Even though that's what God desired, what happened? Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And so, what we need is godly sorrow, right? Godly sorrow, here's my point this morning. Godly sorrow is the only thing that will turn your heart back to God in such a way that it actually produces true repentance and leads unto salvation.
And I'm going to show you Scripture to prove that this morning. And Ezra, look at the first point with me. That's what we're going to see. Godly sorrow is the only thing that will produce a repentance that leads to salvation from God's judgment. Look at Ezra chapter, um, starting in verse 9. Uh, in chapter 9, I'm sorry. Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 6 through 15. I want to show you how many times Ezra acknowledges the great sin and how serious it is in their life. Look what he says. In chapter 9, starting in verse 6. O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. Anybody see godly sorrow here? Keep going. Why? For our iniquities have risen what? In other words, Ezra don't just look at his sin in his life and go, well, it's menial, it, it, it don't matter. Ezra looks at his life and at the life all around him. He said, God, our sin has risen higher than our heads. Ezra recognizes how great their sin is before God. And the greater you begin to recognize how serious your sin is, the more godly sorrow can be produced in you. But let me tell you something. If you see only God is so loving and so merciful and so gracious, and God only wants happiness for you, and God only wants the best in life for you, and God is all about you, and you are the center of the universe, if that's the way that you see God, I'm sorry, you're missing it. And so here he says very plainly, I recognize that I am so far away from where God is. We're not even anywhere close. And then he goes next, he says, And our guilt has what? Mounted up to where? The heavens. You see how Ezra is just acknowledging how great my sin is, how serious our sin is. And then notice what he says. From the day of our fathers to this day, we have been in what? Great guilt, iniquity. And our iniquities and for our iniquities, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, plundering, to utter shame as it is today. And so again, we could go on, but the point here is that Ezra recognizes the sin in their life and he is so ashamed of it that he can't even lift his face to God for it. And this is the kind of heart that God is pleased with. Now I'm not saying we stay there, right? But I am saying that that's where it begins. And so godly sorrow, because we know that God hates sin. He hates everything about sin. He has no part with sin. And one of the things that we see in this right here <clears throat> Let me go back to it again. Where he said here that we have been in great guilt. It's risen higher than our heads. It is mounted up past the heavens. He understands how serious the sin in their lives is. And at the end of the day, um, one of my favorite teachers is named um, R.C. Sproul. Right before R.C. died, he was on a panel and a question was asked. Some of y'all that know him will know this very well. But a question was asked. They said, when man transgressed against God, why was God's pun if God here's what he said, if God is so patient and so long-suffering, and if God is slow to anger, 
then when man sinned against God, why was God's punishment so severe and long-lasting? And R.C. stopped for a minute and he leaned up in his chair and he just kind of shook his head. And he said, Why was God's punishment so severe and so long-lasting? And then his famous quote, he said, What's wrong with you people? He said, this creature from the dirt, this creature from the dirt looked at the Creator, the everlasting Almighty God and defied Him to His face. When that Creator had told the creature, in the day that you do this, you will die. And yet, He lived another day, and another day, and another day. And God clothed him in his nakedness and in his sin. And God showed him mercy and grace. And God gave him a way to come back to him through faith. And God gave him a promise to believe. And you want to look at this and say, why was God's punishment so severe and so long-lasting? And he came to this conclusion. The problem with Christians today is that you and I don't understand the greatness of our sin. We don't see the holiness and the greatness of God and we don't see how serious the sin is in our lives. And because of that, we don't understand and tremble and fear at the warnings of God to flee from sin, to flee from every appearance of evil in our lives. And so whenever I look at this right here, I see that when Ezra and the people here have godly sorrow, it came from the fact that they recognized how serious their sin was. They understood and they confessed to God, God, we are so far away from You that You, you have every right to destroy us completely right now. And that ought to be the confession of many of us in here today. Amen? And it led them to godly sorrow. And this godly sorrow led to true repentance. The next thing I want you to be able to see is I want you to notice in this prayer how many times Ezra recognizes how great God's mercy and grace have been. Go back to the prayer in Ezra chapter 9 and start in verse 8 again. That first word of verse 8, I love that. I love when you see a word but in the Word of God. In other words, this is what it is, but this is how it, or this is how it should be, but this is how it is. And notice what it says in verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown. We recognize how great and how serious our sin is, and yet God has not destroyed us. When the lightning was flashing down the other day and I looked up and said, God, you ought to have done struck me down right now. And yet He didn't. Yet He continued to give me life. He continued not only to, to give me life, but to show me favor. Now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. You know what Ezra's saying right there? None of us deserve to be here right now. God should have destroyed every one of us. 
Every one of us ought to be spending an eternity in hell. Do you understand that? You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve to be with God. Every one of us deserve to spend an eternity in a devil's hell. But for a brief moment, God has saved a remnant. God has saved a group of people out of this. And I thank God that for whatever reason He saw fit, only His grace is the only reason I know that He selected me to be part of this. And all I can do is praise Him for it. But He says, You have shown us favor by leaving us a remnant because we should have been destroyed just like everybody else in the, in your, in, in, that you destroyed. And you have given us a secure hold within His holy place. I love that. You have given us a secure hold in your holy place. This remnant that you could have destroyed, should have destroyed, but you brought out of bondage, you brought them to your kingdom, you're bringing them into your promised land, you have saved them by your grace, you should have destroyed me, but I know how great my sin is, I know how far apart from you I am, and yet at the same time, you gave me a secure hold in your holy place. Do you see where godly sorrow comes from? He recognizes how great his sin is. And at the same time, he recognizes how great God's mercy and grace is. And as a result of this, his heart is rent and he is broken and his desire is just to be able to get back to where he belongs to God. Keep going with me because it don't stop there. Not only that, but you have granted to us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. How many of you know that in spite of the kind of sinner you are, God has been so good to us. God has been so good to me. And all I can say is, God, I don't deserve this. I deserve the exact opposite of this. And yet you have been so merciful and you have been so gracious. And this brings up godly sorrow in their lives. If there is any hope of godly sorrow in our lives, it is only going to come from knowing the greatness of your sin. And it is only going to come from knowing the greatness of the mercy and grace of God. And until, that's the reason why I pray that God continues to bring my sin so much to the light. It's not that I want to feel bad, but I truly want to be able to understand how amazing His grace is in my life. You know, that's the thing about it. When John Newton wrote that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. Until you truly understand how much of a wretch you are, until you understand how lost you were, you won't understand how amazing His grace is that He has demonstrated and shown toward you. And until that comes, there will be no godly sorrow. I don't care how much you uh, strive with your sin. I don't care how much somebody strives with you in it. Until this happens, godly sorrow will not come. And godly sorrow is what is needed to produce repentance. Next point. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Look what happens in Ezra chapter 10 verse 1 through 3. 
Ezra chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people what? The people wept bitterly. In other words, the people heard Ezra's confession. They heard the word that Ezra quotes in his prayer. Ezra quotes the word of God in his prayer of what their sin is and how great it is. And when the people hear it and the people hear how great God's grace has been toward them, it causes them to tremble at the word of God and it causes them to gather around Ezra and weep bitterly because of the sin in their lives. And what you see here is that this godly sorrow that Ezra has, it leads to godly sorrow in the people's hearts, and then it's going to lead to them repenting. Now, what I want you to remember, I've taught you this before, but just in case you forgot. Repentance, when the Bible talks about repentance in the Bible, it's actually talking about... Excuse me, hang I'm getting too excited. <clears throat> so when the Bible talks about repentance, it'll come back. Give me just a minute. <clears throat> it's talking about a change of mind. In other words, <clears throat> God brings you to a place to where you agree with His Word. You look at His Word and you look at what He says and He shows you what's wrong and what doesn't belong. And in the process of that, repentance is a change of mind that says, God, I agree with you. You are right about who I am. And you are right to destroy it. You are right to show grace and mercy to whom you choose and whom you don't. God, you are right. And then the place of repentance starts with the change of mind and then it leads to a change of action. We're not just talking about behavioral modification here. You do understand that if Ezra had have led these people to repent by just Uh, what they're going to do. They're going to put away these foreign wives and these children. When Ezra does this, if that's all they did, but their heart was not rent, they did not have a change of mind to agree with God, and if that is not what led to their change of action, then all you've got is behavior modification. As a parent, when you discipline your child, your goal should not just be to make them do what you want them to do. Your goal should be to change their mind. That in their heart and in their mind they understand why this is so wrong for them. Why this is so disrespectful. Why they shouldn't act this way or do these things. And then when that change of mind takes place, it should be followed by a change of action. Does that make sense? This is what happens in the people. They don't just have behavior modification. They actually have repentance. And where did this repentance come from? It came from godly sorrow, a rent heart, a humble heart that was expressed in a contrite heart. And so 
When we have this godly sorrow, it produces repentance. Keep going with me in verse 2 of Ezra chapter 10. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with who? With our God. Here you see active repentance. They have changed their mind about where they are. They now look at their sin and they say, God, we have sinned against you. We have broken faith against you. We have did this and you are our God. And then notice what it says. And we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. I love that too. Even now, there is hope. Even though we have broken faith, even though we are not where we should be, even though we have this great mounting sin in their life, in our life, even now, there is hope in spite of this. And then notice what he says in verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. Now again, Moses is the one that has set this law up and he did it out of the hardness of the hearts of people. And so they think that they're doing what is right. But here's what we see in this. We see that they have a true godly sorrow. And they have a true repentance in their heart. They have a change of mind and now it is leading them to this is what we're going to do to change our actions. And this is the kind of heart that God will respond to with grace and with mercy, and with His steadfast love. It is a humble and a contrite heart that has truly been led by godly sorrow, and it produces a changed mind, which produces a changed heart, and it changes the actions and the way that I live. There are too many people that come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and repentance never happens because there was never any real, true, godly sorrow for the sin in their life. There was never any true trembling at His Word and wanting to be rescued from the wrath of God that is coming upon them. But when you have this, it will lead to godly sorrow, and this godly sorrow will produce repentance, and this repentance will produce a salvation not to be regretted. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11. This is what the Apostle Paul taught on it. For godly grief produces what? So there again, I'm not telling you something that's not in the Word of God. Very plainly, Paul looks back at stories like this and he sees true godly grief in your heart will produce a repentance, a changed mind, a changed heart. And that kind of repentance leads to what? A salvation without regret. In other words, it's a place to lift your head. A place to be excited about that the mercy and the grace of God has been applied to me because I trust Him with all my heart. Because I've recognized who I am as a sinner. Because I've recognized how great His grace is toward me. 
and I have trusted in that, and I have asked Him for that, and I know that He will keep His Word. And so it leads to a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? If all you are is sorry that you got caught, it ain't going to be long before you do it again. That's just the truth of it. And so worldly grief, it may have some grief for a moment, but it don't last. Godly grief continues to lead you in repentance and continues to lead you in this. And so Paul says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. That's my third point I want to show you this morning. Godly grief produces a repentance and then this repentance and this godly grief produces an earnestness an earnestness and an eagerness. Look, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to do what? To clear yourselves. In other words, these people in Ezra see the sin in their life. They see how it's mounting up. They see where it goes. And now they want to clear themselves of it. It's not that God wants you to just see yourself as a sinner and you walk out of here with your head down and there is no hope and there is nothing that can be done. No! He wants godly grief to produce a repentance in you because He promises that the ones that have a humble and a contrite heart, I will look upon that person. The ones that actually come to me with steadfast love and seek my knowledge and want me and love me, I will look upon that person. And so here we see that godly sorrow leads to a repentance to where God responds to that. And in the process of that, it leads you with an eagerness and an earnestness to clear yourself of that sin. I want this sin out of my life. And this is where your heart should be too. You are to be able to see the seriousness of your sin. And if you see how great His grace is, and if you see how far between those two are, and you are broken, and there is godly grief as a result of this, it will produce. Listen, if you don't have repentance in your life, the thing that is lacking is godly sorrow. And my prayer for each and every one of you this morning is that God will break your heart over your sin. And so he says here that there ought to be an eagerness to clear yourself. And anybody in here that has ever been born again, you ought to know that you want to walk a new life. I want to be different. I want to follow Him. I want to be like Him. And from that day forward, you are in the midst of a battle, a war, a war with your sin, a war with your flesh. But he says it also produced eagerness to clear yourself. It produced indignation, a great hatred for the sin in your life. See, that's one thing that I always tell people about an evidence of somebody that's that's born again. Do you hate the sin in your life? Or are you okay with it? You think you and God are okay. Me and God are just fine. Probably not. Probably not. There is an indignation that is produced from godly sorrow, a hatred for the sin in my life. Look what he says next. 
Not only did it pr produce indignation, it produced fear. A trembling at the Word of God. You know the Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You know part of our problem is that we don't tremble at the Word of God anymore. Part of the problem is we don't look back at the warnings God says about sin and what He's going to do to sin and, and how it's going to be eternally destroyed and torment. I want you to understand something. Whenever God sends things to hell, He don't send sin to hell. He sends sinners to hell. You understand that? And there ought to be a trembling at the Word of God, when we don't see godly sorrow at work in our heart, when we don't see repentance in our heart, when we don't see an indignation and an eagerness and an earnestness to clear ourselves of sin, when we don't have fear in our life. Now I'm not saying that we are to walk around trembling and scared to death, but I am saying that there is a healthy fear of God that makes you want to stay close to Him, not away from Him. And then he says, what longing it produced in you. Godly sorrow produces a longing. And we see this in these people. They have such a longing to clear themselves that they're willing to do whatever it takes. And they lay out this plan. And Ezra's sitting there and he's going, I just don't know if there's any hope. And notice in Ezra chapter 10, verse um, 4. Look what they have to tell Ezra. Get up, Ezra, arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took an oath. So there again, what's my point? My point is that godly sorrow led to a repentance. It led to a... Um, a change of mind and a change of heart that changed actions. It led to eagerness. It led to an earnestness in attacking my sin. It, it led to an indignation, a hatred for my sin. It led to a fear of God because of my sin. It led to a longing to get rid of this in my sin. It led to a zeal in me about this. It led to make me want to punish my sin. I want my sin to be punished. I don't want my sin to think that it can just have rule and reign in my life. I want my sin to understand that I submit to God, I don't submit to you. Amen. This is the reason why fasting is so important for us. Because fasting is like spiritual exercise. Any of y'all in here that go to the gym and lift weights, you know you have to break them muscles down to build them back, right? Well, fasting is the same way. Fasting is you telling the flesh, whether it is that you are abstaining from food or whatever it may be, you're telling the flesh, I don't submit to you, I submit to God. And when my flesh cries out, I'm hungry, give me food, you look at the flesh and you say, no. No, you're not in control. God is in control. And you're sitting there pumping weight, baby. And the more you pump weight, the stronger you get. But it has to start with godly sorrow. And godly sorrow will not happen without you recognizing how serious your sin is, how great your sin is, and how amazing the grace is in your life that you're even still breathing today. 
that He even lets you get up and come here today. This is what we need in our lives. We need godly sorrow that produces this, and godly sorrow is the only thing that can produce this. I'd ask you this question today in my closing. When you look at your life, what is the particular sin in your life that usually turns you away from God? Because that's what we're dealing with in Ezra, right? We're dealing with the particular sin in their life that is causing them to turn away from God. And so in application for you and I, what is the sin in your life that always seems to keep you from fully trusting and fully following God, that always seems to to keep you away from it? And whatever that is, do you understand how serious that is? Do you understand that if you don't continue to go to war with this, that if there is not a godly sorrow in you for this, that God does not respond to that kind of heart? Do you not understand that this sin is the very thing that may end up proving that you don't believe God and sends you to an eternity in a devil's hell? And if you see the seriousness of it and you see that God has given you another day, another chance to make it right, another chance to go to war with it, another chance to be broken for it and to turn to Him for salvation so that it produces the fight in you. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about believing what He says so that it leads you into salvation. What is the sin in your life that continues to rise up, that continues to turn you away? My prayer for you this morning is that there is a godly sorrow in you, a brokenness, that God, my guilt rises higher than my head. God, my guilt goes higher than the heavens. And yet you have been so good that I'm even still here today. And God, because of that, because of your great grace and your great love and because of who you are, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust in you. And then I trust that God has paid the payment to cover the guilt that stacks higher than anything that looks hopeless. Remember how it looked hopeless to Ezra? Looks hopeless, don't it? I want you to understand something. There is no sin greater than the grace that God gives us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that all you two today is you have a humble and a contrite heart expressing remorse to God about the greatness of your sin. And then you let that lead you to repentance. And that repentance will start in your mind as you agree with God and then it moves to your heart as your heart decides to fight this and as there is an eagerness and there is an earnestness to clear yourself of this and then there's an indignation and a hatred for it and on and on and on. I ain't got to re-preach the sermon. Amen? Amen. (laughs) What is the sin in your life? My prayer for you this morning is that you find godly sorrow that you find the miracle of godly sorrow and that it breaks you.